From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is a Resound Special. Should we change your nappy? Should we change your nappy? Yeah. Not very nice, is it? What's the matter? Nothing. 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 I only a large sandwich. You'd like a what? A sandwich. A sandwich. You'll get a sandwich shortly. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and audio goodness we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear on ReSound. All right, well, I've got some grapes for you. Would you like some grapes? I don't know. Let's face it, as a species, we human beings get a pretty bad rap. Egotistical, individualistic, greedy, oh, the list goes on. But at the same time, paradoxically, we're also natural caregivers who are compelled to take care of others as much as we need to be taken care of ourselves. Today on ReSound, we explore the delicate interdependence between being in need and answering the call to help. Lovers, family members, nurses, and, oh yeah, let's not forget Dr. Buzz. Hey, Buzz Buzz. Stay tuned. The most terrifying part of having a baby is not the pain or the racking anxiety over all the things that can go wrong. No, the single most gut-wrenching, hand-wringing, nail-biting moment of parenthood is the second when the nurse gets you all dressed, tucks the baby into your arms, wheels you to the hospital door, and waves bye-bye. There you are, horrified. As any parent will tell you, there is a steep learning curve that accompanies a new baby's arrival. For Dad Ryan Knighton, even a simple walk around the block was a hair-raising experience. I think I'll take Tess for a walk, I announced one morning. Tess is our four-month-old. This would be our first walk together. My wife Tracy paused. The silence throbbed with concern. Oh, she said. Uh, okay. I've already got the baby uh, chest sack carrier thing, I said. If you can put her sweater on or whatever. You, uh, you sure? Tracy asked. I was already busy putting the harness on inside out. Yep, we'll be fine. I'll go with you then, Tracy said. She sounded extra cheerful, persuasive. Well, if you don't mind, I said, I'd really like to take her myself. Maybe you could do something nice while we're gone. Like what? She asked. I don't know. Yoga? Coffee? I couldn't recall how we used to spend an hour of our old lives before Tess was born. Nah, Tracy insisted. I'll just go for a walk with you two. I couldn't angle a kind way to say, but I don't want you to walk with us. For once, I want to take Tess for a walk by myself. So instead, I said, look, you never get any time alone. Tracy didn't need reminding. In four months, she'd never been further than the shower without Tess either in her arms or in sight. She hadn't much in the way of alternatives either. I'm her husband, but I'm also blind. 
and people are naturally wary of leaving me in charge of a baby, even my own. Though I've been blind for 10 years now, I'm still not very good at it. I lost my sight slowly over a 15-year stretch, a slow and painless deterioration of my retinas caused by a genetic misfire with a long name. While I've adapted to much over time, four months with a baby is a slender window in which to perfect my new dad skills. Just imagine changing a nappy in the dark. What was once a diaper is now psychedelic origami. Today my plan was to strap on our child for a walk through city traffic. You can understand Tracy's reluctance. It's just a little walk, I said. We'll be fine. You have the baby carrier on upside down, she said, surrendering, and got up to dress our child, maybe for what was in her mind the last time. A few minutes later, I descended our front stoop with Tess. I have never been more petrified as a blind pedestrian. Tess was harnessed to my belly, and the weight of her there, that new presence against my chest and stomach, brought other sensations to the surface. I could feel memories of mushing my gut into any number of undetected obstacles. Into poles, bicycles, parking meters, chain-link fences, you name it. I stepped cautiously, deliberately, as if carrying a sack of sweaty dynamite. I swept my cane with the care of a mine detector. Twenty minutes later, we'd only made it to the corner. We live two doors down from the corner. The first person to pass us saw the situation in simpler terms. Jesus, that's got to be tricky, she said as she passed. Maybe she said it to me, or maybe to a person she was walking with, or maybe, as her phrasing suggested, to her pal Jesus. Already, strangers were praying for our survival. Within the next block and the next 20 minutes of slow-going movement, at least a half a dozen others offered similar prayers, or insisted on guiding us, or asked to take us home, or asked if we'd lost mommy. Slowly, we edged around the corner at Grant Street, and left the residential sidewalks for Commercial Drive, the busiest street in my Vancouver neighborhood. More people meant more noise to govern by. A good thing. The sound of traffic stretched into the distance, so at least I had something pointing me in the right direction. The help of crowds has a backhand, though. Busy people pay less attention to their surroundings. Folks regularly clip my shoulders, and I've been caught off balance and knocked down before. Here they might even slam us head-on or smush a slice of hot, cheap pizza into Tess's face. And there would be dogs, too. Usually it's pit bulls around here, pit bulls leashed to bike racks or snoozing in front of doorways, as you'd find them in their native habitat by the gates of Hades. Too often I've whacked my cane against a dog where no dog should be, and too many times large, toothy shadows have snapped at my legs. Tess could become a chew toy. I waved my free hand in front of us, braced my arm, and pushed ahead the way running backs rush into a dog pile, but really, really slowly. Within ten steps, somebody clipped my shoulder. As I rebounded, it happened again, this time sending me off course, towards a garbage can. A woman caught up with us. 
she'd retrieved Tess's baby sunglasses that had fallen to the sidewalk a while back. Here, she said. You let the baby drop these. Thanks, I said. You should be careful, she said. Telling a blind person he should be careful is like telling him to look out. It's not a question of should, but how. I thanked her again and tried to fit the glasses back onto Tess's face. Mostly, though, I just poked at her chubby cheeks with the arms. We shuffled on. Soon, I recognized a voice at a sidewalk cafe table. The voice belonged to Joe, an older Italian man who continues to be, as best I can determine, shackled to my preferred coffee shop. My God, he said as we approached, you got a little baby. He was up and at us in seconds, pinching Tess's cheeks. This was a man who looked past my blindness and her vulnerability. He simply drank in the baby and her babiness. It was refreshing. I'm telling you, Joe said, coming up for breath. This is a hell of a beautiful baby. She likes me, I can tell. He tickled the baby some more. And look, Joe went on. She's got a little sunglasses on and, uh... Suddenly, all the espresso-fueled joy drained from his body. The glasses. My God, no, he said, his voice low and serious. She don't see. My God, she don't see like you. It took a few minutes to convince him that everything was fine. He found it hard to believe that babies might wear sunglasses for comfort. As we rounded the corner at Gravely Street, stepping past the pub and local Ubrew, a mere 30 yards from home plate, I heard the ridiculous girth of an SUV shoot out from a building's underground parking lot. The weight of its supersized engineering and Freudian neurosis blew across the sidewalk in front of us. Close enough, in fact, to bat the cane from my hand and into the street. My heart stopped. I didn't know if Tess had been clipped. Everything happened so fast. She sucked wind, readying a hail of tears and a permanent distrust of her father's guidance. Nothing came, though. And still nothing came. So I knew she was shaping that worst cry. The deep, silent, open-mouthed cry. The one that can't find any voice in the beginning. I braced myself, and then it arrived. She violently shook and kicked and squealed. With laughter. Out of her came a glee powerful enough to start my heart again. A laugh like I've never heard before. Meanwhile, the driver had stopped. He fetched my cane. Had I been one step closer home, when the SUV had left the lot, my spine would have resembled what now remained of my cane. Sorry there, the driver said and handed me my new boomerang. Didn't see you coming. Cute baby. Before I knew what to say or remembered how to yell, he was back inside his tank, putting it in hyperdrive. You should be careful, he said from out the window, and sped away. The moment we walked through the front door of our house, Tracy rushed to us from her perch at the living room window. Were you watching for us? I asked. Of course, she said. She began to dismantle the baby carrier on my chest. She had the speed and dexterity of a soldier breaking down a gun. 
And so, how'd it go? She asked, lifting Tess out. Her relief was audible. It went fine, I said. Perfectly fine. Tracy laid Tess on a blanket and left us there for a minute while she readied Tess's bath. On the blanket, on the floor, blocks and stuffed toys circled my daughter like a moat. She was safe. Safe for me, perhaps. My fingertips found her chin, her nose, two impossibly tiny ears. I'd know that face anywhere. I touched her fingers to my chin, to my whiskered cheeks. See? Papa, I said. Papa. First Steps was produced by Jonathan Goldstein and Mira Bertwintonic with Crystal Duhame. The piece was adapted from an essay by Ryan Knighton from his book, Come On, Papa, Dispatches from a Dad in the Dark. The story first aired on the CBC's Wiretap, which is distributed in the U.S. by PRI, Public Radio International. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Coming up after the break, end-of-life care after a long, loving, and forbidden relationship. You're listening to a ReSound special from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm Gwen Maxi. Three times a week I go and see Norm. I get up, I pack a titbit lunch for him. Hard cheese and prosciutto and things that I know that he, he enjoys having. At the beginning of life, we're completely dependent. But often, at the end of life we require caretakers again. In caring for a baby, our thoughts drift toward the future and all of the possibilities. With the elderly, though, our thoughts can drift toward the past. Our next documentary is a love story in remembrance that begins at the end and looks back on a visceral bond that defined two lives. My name is Brian Trelaw and I'm 76 years old. We separated our bedroom a while ago because he said that I snored so dreadfully that it was keeping him awake. But then he missed me because he couldn't put his cold feet on me to warm up. So 
all those things are gone by the board, but they're the lovely things that you remember. The very first thing that I loved about Norm, the very first moment that I saw him, was that I got a beautiful smile and his eyes were sad. Cheese. The only thing I'd ever eaten was that blue boxed craft in all my life. I'd never ever had any any gorgonzola stink, my God. However, I got to love it. Olives. I thought I when he brought these black grapes home, I thought, what in the heck name are they? Put one in my mouth and went like that, it's out as quick as it went in, quicker. I thought, how disgusting, how can anybody eat that? I now love them. So food has played a big part in our, in our lives. Three times a week I go and see Norm, which is uh, Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I get up, I pack a titbit lunch for him. Enough grated cheese for you, Normie, I think. Uh, they're little, little pieces of enjoyment like hard cheese and prosciutto and things that I know that he, he enjoys having as apart from the meal that he gets at the, uh, the nursing home. I then put it into my little roll-along trolley. I mean, the sadness is that I... I can't give him a cuddle, but then he doesn't, I don't think he knows me now. Um, every now and then I get some semblance of recognition and then I think, well, does he really recognise me because he'll put up his hand and then you see a change come over his face like, oh, that's not him, that's not who it is. And he puts his hand down again, so I think, oh, at least for that moment, you remembered. Oh, hello, you've got a car out the front here and I'm coming to see Basso. Okay. G'day, Norm. How are you? Hello. Here I am, here. What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. I don't need a last sandwich. You'd like a what? A sandwich. A sandwich? You'll get a sandwich shortly. I'm not hungry. You're not hungry? I need now. All right, well, I've got some grapes for you. Would you like oh, some grapes? I don't know. All right, well, lift your feet up and we'll go. We'll, we'll go. Never thought I'd ever be feeding him like a baby. One of those things that just, you just never think of it. The door is just cheese. I've always liked it. The door? The Romano. Um. Formaggio Romano, no? Di piace questo. No? Yeah. 
perché, perché ti piace? Perché è duro, no? Più duro degli altri. Lovely. Yeah, I'll put it on the spoon. Most afternoons when I'm home, when I'm not visiting the nursing home, I put on Chopin. I put on Chopin because that's what I learnt as a kid and it has stayed with me all my life. And Chopin takes me right away from all the dreariness that's around me at the present time. He invited mum and dad and my sisters down here and I said, you've got to come. They come down in the flyer, in the morning flyer, and they stayed here for lunch. And he put a spatchcock down in front of mum and dad each. And I heard mum say to dad, dad, this, I could, I could keep, keep us all on this for a week, just on this one chicken. And I said, you've got to eat it, mum. Eat a lot of it, even if it fills you up to the point that you're busting. You've got to eat it, otherwise it's an insult. So, you know, but before that he'd, he'd fed my father oysters and prawns and my father loved oysters and loved prawns. Well, after that my father said, that's a wonderful man you've got. I forgive you. That was, uh, that meant a lot because after that I could go home without, without the insults coming back at me. How's your den of iniquity? Oh, I'd love to know where that is. Hostility. It made us very good actors because on the outside world, we were just two straight guys, two, two mates, you know? Um, we went around all the pubs together and, and we uh, went to restaurants together with like-minded people and they also were very good actors so there was no kissing or cuddling or holding hands or it, you know, nothing. All we could do was be two Aussie guys. Him being an Italian and me being Australian was a bit difficult but still it was, uh, it was fun, but it also made us very much stronger because we were bound together then. Bound not only in, in our love for each other, but we were bound through the antagonism that we knew would be there if we demonstrated anything beyond, you know, mateship. One day we were walking down the street and a copper pulled us up because Norm had on a, a boat neck shirt, boat neck, women know what I'm talking about, with a boat neckline, and uh, it was stripes across it. He looked a bit like, I suppose, one of those gondoliers that you'll hear about in, in Venice. 
and white pointy shoes. Well, nobody here had white pointy shoes in 1956. And he said, what are those things on your feet? And I said, can't you see their shoes? He said, well, go back to your hotel or wherever you're living and change because we don't want that in our streets. It was a Sunday. You don't dress like that on a Sunday. We said, we're going, to, we're going to mass. He said, well, you're not going to mass in those shoes, that's for sure. We had to go back home. Norm couldn't get over, never got over that. All his life he said, remember that dreadful copper? I said, yes, but you know, it was like, that was what it was like. We had another friend that lived just down the street from where we live now, and he said, there's a big house up the street from me that's up for sale. And I said, how much? And he said, six and a half thousand pound. I thought, oh my God, how can you, six and a half thousand pound? We'll go and have a look at it. So we come and had a look at it, and we come up the steps, and he said, oh, lovely garden, a lovely garden. And I said, yes. I said, I wonder what the house is like. Well, it was old. So the lady opened the door and she asked us in. We came into the lounge room and I thought, oh, what couldn't I do with chandeliers and some nice curtains and a few lovely paintings and mirrors and things like that. <laughs> we used to entertain here. We'd have a Christmas party and there'd be... 50 or 60 at the Christmas party. We'd have dancing on the back veranda. We had a wow of a time in this house because we put up a very high fence at the back. Nobody could look through. And we'd have a wonderful time. Decorate the backyard and everything else like that and all the lanterns and everything. New Year's Eve. Gosh. One, t- one time we had 350 people in and around our house. Just imagine someone waiting at the cottage door Where two hearts become one And poor Norm, I don't know how he did it, he'd cook for all of them. He seemed to be making spaghetti out of buckets all night long. And then taking that vow Nice work if you can get it And if you get it, won't you tell me how I've got equipment all over the house to play music. I've got a grand piano, which I seem to be playing less and less because I'm fingers aren't working and I'm I'm been getting cramps in my little fingers on both hands and it's uh, most disconcerting to be playing something and all of a sudden you can't do something. It's now a vacuum that Norm's not here. It's, it doesn't have, doesn't have a center. It's just a series of rooms that 
that I can reminisce in, I suppose, but it just doesn't have the centre. I'm afraid the music, my music taste has got far darker than when I was younger and then when I had a centre to refer to in the house. It was, you know, it was wonderful with animals, wonderful with flowers. Things like after a storm, when you get that lovely pink light, he'd say to me, look, the flowers are laughing. And I'd look, and yes, they were, they were all nodding their heads, but of course it was just a little bit of water running off them, and they'd bounce, and up they'd come again. So I, I, all these little things were just lovely, lovely expressions from a very lovely man. Recently I was um, sitting there and, and, uh, and I started to rub his back thinking, you know, I could put him to sleep and I'd leave. So then he, uh, I was sitting there and I put my hand up his back and onto his skin and started to rub his back and that, you know, virtually draw on his back. And I, and I know that for anybody, it's a, it's a lovely se sensation. We've always done it as kids and your mothers have done it on your back and it sent you to sleep. So at any rate, um, one of the nuns came past and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm scratching his back because, you know, he's, he's uh, uncomfortable. He's been sitting in this chair all day. And so I'm just sort of rubbing his skin so that I sort of get the circulation back into it. And I said, and I'm drawing on his back at the same time. I said, Some, it's a sensation that we've all loved. And she, she then thought for a moment. She said, you know, I'd love it if somebody had scratched my back sometime. So at any rate, that, that passed off. But I'm always fearful of that fact that I might show something or he might show something and then we get treated like dirt. I don't think my love for him has changed. The only thing that I do realise is that he's not going to come back. And I'm many a cry I've had over that. But love him, I'll love him until the day he dies. I'll love him until the day I die. I just love him. Right out. Right there. This is always the hard part. I'd like to break into tears, actually, but I, I've got to stop. Because I, on top of that, I can't let this lot here. Not, no. Not, not, not so. It's dry. It's dry. It's dry. What for the cry? Yeah. It said oh. to me. Yeah. He got, he got all to. I just cry sometimes when I'm sad. Saka ti amo. Saka ti amo per sempre. Eh? Ti amo. Per sempre, no?
Brian and Norm was produced by Siobhan Hunt for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Listening to the intimate stories of other people's lives is a privilege, and it's one we try to handle with care. Tell us how we're doing. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Today we're listening to stories about giving and receiving care. In looking for great work on the subject, we stumbled upon a series from the early 90s called The Life Stories Collection, produced by Jay Allison. There we found this story about the kinship that developed between a 14-year-old patient and his nurse. Brent Runyon tells the story. During the first weeks in the burn unit, pain blurred from my wounds like air horns at a high school football game. I hated my body my nerves, my brain. I wanted them all to just shut up. There were only a few times I wasn't in pain. Once before burn therapy, Tina, my nurse, pushed morphine straight into my bloodstream instead of dripping it through the IV. I asked her to push it. I begged her to let me feel it all at once, to blow out my mind like an overexposed photograph, and she did. For 30 seconds, I couldn't feel my body. My vision was whitewashed, and I understood why someone would want to be an addict. When I could talk again, I mumbled, why don't they sell this stuff on the streets? They could make a fortune. Tina unwrapped my bandages, exposing my legs to the air. I looked down. They didn't look like legs at all. They were skinny and useless, so many shades of purple they didn't even look real. I saw the massive wound as big as a mailbox on my left thigh, where the fire had burned all the way through to the muscle. Tina saw me looking, leaned over and whispered what she always said. It's okay. It's going to get better. The redness means that it's healing. I closed my eyes and braced myself for what was coming next. She would begin by cleaning each open wound on my feet, working up to my thighs, and then she would turn me on my stomach to clean the holes in my back. The pain roared from my legs as she cleaned the first wound. Tina explained that my body was healing, and that healing was one of the most painful things a body could do. She said that pain meant I was getting better. It didn't feel like I was getting better. My skin was tissue paper, and she was tearing at it with steel wool. She told me that if it hurt too much that I should scream as loud as I could, and at first I didn't want to. I thought it would be rude or disruptive, and that I could just close my mind to the pain if I tried. But she said that I should scream, and that would let some of the pain out. And so she cleaned every wound three times. I screamed, and it became a kind of waltz, with Tina counting her swipes aloud, and me screaming, One, two, three, scream. One, two, three, scream. After she covered me in gauze and ace bandages, my body was shivering. I was exhausted, crying a little bit, trying not to think about how I'd have to do it all over again in eight hours. Tina stood at the head of my bed, her thick black curls spiraled toward my face. Brent, she said, do you like ice cream? It seemed like a silly question, since I was still getting fed through a tube in my nose. When you get that nose tube out, when you can walk again, I'm going to take you to the best ice cream shop in D.C. 
It had been weeks since I had eaten anything, and I hadn't even thought about ice cream. I couldn't believe it. Tina and I would go out for ice cream when I could walk. We would go on a date. It was eight weeks later, and it was going to be my first time outside the burn unit. Most of the pain had gone and been replaced by the itch. Anyone who's ever had a burn can tell you that the itch comes after the pain and that it's sometimes worse because it's constant. It made me feel like the skin on my body didn't belong to me, as if it had been stripped away in my sleep and replaced with raw wool. I prepared for hours for my date with Tina. My mom and another nurse named Barbara picked out the loosest, least irritating clothing, and they helped me into a pair of baggy athletic pants and a hard rock cafe London t-shirt that my mom said looked really cool. They discussed whether I should wear the pressure bandage that masked part of my face, and then Barbara slipped the chin strap over my head and velcroed it behind my neck. She put a purple Los Angeles Lakers cap on me to cover part of the bandage. They both said that I looked handsome. I didn't look in a mirror. Finally, Tina came to pick me up for our date. She had taken off her scrubs and put on a loose white sweater. Her functional shoes were replaced with green all-stars, and she was wearing shorts. I'd never seen her in shorts before. She looked so relaxed, not like a nurse at all. She smiled at me from the doorway. As a burn nurse in a children's hospital, Tina rarely had patients that she could talk to. Most of the kids she took care of were two-year-olds, kids that could walk well enough to pull boiling water down from the stove, but couldn't understand that it wasn't her fault that they were in pain. Those kids hated her for hurting them. They panicked every time she came near them, but I knew that the pain wasn't her fault. I talked to her, and we made each other laugh. Could a 26-year-old burn nurse be interested in her 14-year-old patient? I was in love with Tina, and I was sure that she was at least a little bit in love with me, too. Why else would she take me out on a date, and she had called it a date? Why else would she wear shorts or green shoes, a clear sign to a 14-year-old boy that says, Go, go, go. We waited for the elevator next to a hospital directory sign, and I decided to make my first joke. I cleared my throat and said, Spina bifida. That sounds like some sort of Greek food. Tina made a face and said, You wouldn't say that if you knew what it was. The elevator doors opened. Walking out of the hospital with Tina made me feel like I was on a real date, although I'd never been on a date before. Something about being on my own feet, walking into the fresh air, the afternoon sunlight, a woman next to me. A woman who had, I reminded myself, already seen me naked. But by the time we got to the car, I was exhausted. Sweating from the few remaining pores in my forehead and armpits, the itch which had been mercifully quiet during the first few minutes of our date started buzzing in my legs. Tina must have noticed that I was uncomfortable, because she put the back of her hand, no rubber glove, her actual hand against my forehead, and wiped the beating sweat away. What did that mean, I wondered to myself. Tina parked about a block away from the ice cream place she'd been telling me about, got out of the car, and rushed around to my side to open the door. That's sweet, I thought. I wish I'd done that for her. She helped me onto my feet, and we began walking towards the ice cream place. You okay? she asked. Sure, I said. You? I was trying to ignore the itch that had spread up my legs and into my back. I was walking. That was the important thing. And I was on a date. Inside, the cool air dried the sweat on my forehead, and I began to feel more confident. I let out a sigh of relief just to let her know that the worst was over, and that we would start to have fun any second. We stood in line behind a few senior citizens that were deciding between pistachio and butter pecan. I smiled at her and rolled my eyes a little as if to say, Can you believe these old people? They're so slow. And she smiled back. This is working, I thought. This is really working.
It was then that I saw the ice cream guy checking Tina out from behind the counter. He was college-aged, handsome. I knew what he was thinking. We stepped up to the counter and I prepared myself for the flirting. And then he looked at me and his smile dropped into an expression of mock pain as he said, Ouch! What happened to you? As soon as he said it, I felt the blood pool in my legs and the itch throb all over my body. I backed up a little, stepped away from the counter. I looked down at my feet. I put my hands in my pockets. I didn't want to talk to him anymore. I didn't want to say anything. Tina finally broke the spell and asked me what kind of ice cream I wanted. It was all I could do to mumble, chocolate. My head still cast downward, studying the tile patterns. I asked her if we could eat it in the car on the way back to the hospital, and she said that we could. On the way home, I reached up and touched the long purple scar on my cheek. I pinched the edge and blanched it white between my fingers. The scar was numb on my cheek, lifeless and hard like a wad of gum under a school desk. Thanks to Ice Cream Guy, I realized that redness didn't mean I was healing anymore. It meant that I was disfigured. I understood that I wasn't going to get much better. Despite all the reassuring things Tina had said to me in the burn unit, this was it. Ice Cream Boy saw me for what I was. Scarred. All I wanted then was to go back to the hospital. I wanted to climb into my mechanical bed and watch Regis and Kathy Lee for the rest of my life. I wanted to eat chalky pudding and flirt with the nurses. I wanted to be able to scream. When we got back to the hospital, Tina walked me to the elevator, and we rode up to the third floor. We hadn't said anything on the ride back. She never asked me how I liked the ice cream, which is good because I wouldn't have known what to say. Right before the doors opened, she put her hand on my forehead. I looked at her, and she said, Good night, beautiful. And I walked back to the burn unit. The safest place in the world. Fire and Ice Cream was produced by Brent Runyon, Christina Egloff, and Jay Allison as part of the Life Stories Collection. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Coming up after the break, Dr. Buzz, part cat, part lion, and part therapist. Cats are very intelligent beings, you know. They, they, they sense things about people. Stay tuned. You're listening to a ReSound special from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm Gwen Maxi. 
Dr. Buzz is a very unusual cat, and his name is just the beginning. Normally, we think of ourselves as, you know, taking care of our pets, not the other way around. I mean, sure, our dogs and cats can provide some passive comfort and unconditional love on a bad day. That's normal. Dr. Buzz, on the other hand, not so normal. Hey, Buzz Buzz. Hi, the booby. Hi, the booby kitty. Hi, we're just going to try something. We're just going to give something a little try. It's going to be fine. Mummy promises. So I have duct tape. I have a little machine. I have a dog harness because the cat one um, was too flimsy. So the goal here is to uh, successfully body mic buzz. There we go. We just go over the head. And this goes under the belly. Good boy. Good boy. Good boy. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Dear Buzz, you've always had an odd way of showing your affection. Growling like a lion. Even when you were young, your meow bordered on the belligerent. In those days, you were just a medium-sized cat who looked like he was wearing a tuxedo. No indication that you would end up weighing in at a solid 20 pounds. But it was love at first sight, wasn't it? That day at the Humane Society, when your paw reached out through the cage to grab me, well, it was love at first sight for me, anyway. It felt nice to be with you, fitting you up with that little harness with the microphone. We haven't spent much time together in the last few years. It took me a while to realize that you'd left me, gone off to live with the men down the street. Buzz. Hey, Buzz. How are you, buddy? What's going on there, little Buzz Buzz? <coughs> are you, uh... So you're wired for sound, are you? You're catching mice, are you? Alright, he's all wired up. I didn't understand why you left me after our eight years together to go and live with all those men in a rooming house. In the mornings, as I'd walk by, I'd see you lounging on the front porch as some of them went out to wait for the beer store to open, and you standing at attention, guarding their home. So that's why I decided to put that little microphone on you, so I could hear what goes on in there. Go see your doctor. Go see your doctor. Or just quit drinking. Say no to it. You know, that's all you gotta do. I can't. I know that. I never heard the same story month after month after month. You get slapped around because of your alcoholism. Sure. You know? Buzz, I felt like I didn't know you anymore, and I decided that if I wanted to get to know you again, I'd have to start with getting to know your new, rather intimidating family. 
So he comes in. That's where you at. And there's this. He jumps up on me and then walks over my face and jumps. Generally <laughs> around one or two in the morning, and then he stays till around six, seven. Yeah. No, everybody likes him. Yeah. Well, he's a good cat. He is really. I'm Shannon, by the way. I don't yeah, know if we have Glenn. Ever... Glenn, nice mm -hmm. to meet you. Um, so he uh, uh, does he behave himself? Oh, oh yeah. Well, uh, like. There are times you don't want to pet him, because he'll nip you, you know. <laughs> you know. There's no such thing as owning a cat. A cat owns you, really, <laughs> you know. But uh, I've always had a cat, so that's probably another reason, too. But it's hard to uh, kind of keep a cat in a room, you know. In no room, no ways to move around or... Did, uh, uh, were, were you here when uh, he first came? Oh yeah, I've been here five years now. Yeah, it's strange, that's why, he, I think that's why he keeps coming. Yeah. You weren't home all the time e either, eh? Mm-hmm. You know? Buzz, he's right. I wasn't home much of the time. And when I was, I wasn't in very good shape. When you first came home with me, I tried to believe my drinking was under control, that I didn't have a problem. We both know how that worked out. Do you remember those hangover days where my mouth felt like it was full of dirt and you would stretch your long, sturdy body up against mine as we slept on the couch? You were an anchor against the dry heaves and blinding headaches protection from the shame that wanted to leak into my consciousness. Where did I end up last night? How did I get home? And you were such a resilient cat, so strong and calm, something that I never was. Talk about intelligent life forms. <laughs> Buzz here, I tell you, is, is, is an amazing animal. Do you remember meeting him? Like, do you remember the first time you ever saw him? Yeah, I saw him in, 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 in the entrance uh, oh, three or four years ago or something like that. And I was like going through a pretty bad depression. And mice were driving me nuts. Talk about sleep deprivation. So Buzz Buzz comes along and says, hey, I'm going to help you out. And basically, that's cat language. I used to have four cats of my own and I lost them. <laughs> And believe it or not, that's exactly what he did. He started getting control of the mice. So in return, when I was coming back from the food bank, uh, he would like look, uh, look at me like he knew there was a can of tuna in my food. <laughs> and so I said, sure, I'll share the can of tuna. And before you know it, I started to feed him. And he kind of, what his body language tells me if he likes the chicken or the fish variety. Buzz, I tried to pull it together. Stopped drinking for almost two years. Problem was, I stopped eating too. Alcoholism was replaced by anorexia. At least your size proves that I never forgot to feed you. I'll never forget that day when my therapist was horrified to find out that I had a cat. She was gently prying trying to find out whether I fed you or not. 
Now I know she'd seen anorexics who actually starved their own animals out of love because they believed all food was evil. How could she think I could be so sick that I would starve you? You knew I wouldn't do that to you, didn't you? Well, you see, cats are very intelligent beings, you know. They, they, they sense things about people. I, I feel that Buzz Buzz does more for us to lift us up spiritually or mentally and ease our pain uh, than the system. Like one of the guys over here says, he's like a doctor one day, a priest in another day. You know, the cat cares about people here. Uh, to me, he's got the look of a, a cougar. Literally, he's got a look of a cougar and a heart of a lion. There's no two ways about that. He's been a great inspiration to me. Yeah, I remember first meeting Buzz last November. He came into my room and I was on the third floor. Made himself at home. Okay, but that's what you want. That's what it's gonna be. Caught a mouse, and he was happy. But uh, he came in at nighttime. We jump up the back of the couch and go to sleep. I just let him go to sleep. He's smart. He knows what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. He came up one night, walked up and got my chest here. Oh, heavy, Buzz. Heavy. Oh, Buzz. Buzz, you were my best keeper of secrets, my best nighttime companion. In my darkest times, I had started cutting myself. You'd be watching from the corner of the room, quiet. Did you understand what was happening? Now I can tell you more what's going on, what some people can. Yeah, um, th this is going to sound kind of weird, but I, th I think this might be something you understand. Uh, and this is something I don't tell like a lot of people, but it's about Buzz and, and how special he is to me. Um, and, uh, and there was one time in my life, like, you know, I don't know, six years ago, I was really self-destructive. Like just, you know, didn't want to live. Really bad, bad scene. And, uh, and I was... Um, I was hurting myself with uh, uh, a rug cutter, and but I was in an apartment. Buzz looked at me. He came running at me and threw his body, like kept throwing yeah. it at me to get me to stop. And and for that one moment, I feel like my cat, that cat. Saved your life. Yeah. And Buzz. I'll never forget the sound that came out of you. That meow, that howl as you threw yourself up against me again and again until I stopped. Then it was 911, an ambulance, a stretcher. And then I got the help that I needed. A psychiatrist looked at me and told me what I was bipolar and there were things therapy and medicine that could help me life didn't have to be unbearable 
and buzz. Once I got those things, those supports in place, a good doctor and some sobriety, you left me. I believe you left because you knew it was okay to. That I would be okay, and I have been, mostly. Buzz, you loved me when I couldn't love myself. I miss you, and I'm glad you found those men who give you so much. Yours, whenever you need or want me, Shannon. The Amazing Dr. Buzz was produced by Steve Wadhams for Outfront from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. This Resound Special is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors, including Audrey Neffenegger. Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago and is now an independent nonprofit arts organization. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound, radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>